HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. I'm Michael Ameko from Food Talk. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Line. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-chef and owner of Samisa and Ed and Bev's Restaurants in Brooklyn. Each episode, I'll be sitting down with a guest as we trace the line of their career and the path they chose that led them to become the chef or restaurateur they are today. From how it all began to where they are now and everything in between, this is The Line. I'm happy to have Robin Sue Fisher on the show today. Robin is the founder of Smitten Ice Cream based in California. She founded Smitten in 2007, selling churn-to-order ice cream on the streets in San Francisco. The first ice cream shop of hers opened in the Bay Area in 2011. She'll soon be expanding to Los Angeles. Robin, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So first off, of all the businesses you could start, you decided to sell a perishable food item on the street, an item that requires refrigeration. It's not uh, insanely hot in the summer in San Francisco, but it does get warm. So uh, why ice cream in San Francisco? Where did the passion come from uh, to open your company? Uh, Gosh, long story, but ice cream has always been my thing. And my mom used to tell me I had two stomachs ever since I was three. And one of them was solely reserved for ice cream. And I've always believed that. Love so, you. <laughs> heck yeah. Um, so just really wanted to take something I love and make it better. And that thing for me is ice cream. So, uh, you talked about your mom saying that you have two stomachs. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, uh, your original, what was the first time that you had ice cream? Do you really remember a moment where um, you tasted it for the first time and thought, yes. oh my God, this is blowing my mind? I have mind. a very embarrassing photo of it, actually. Um, yeah, I was like three years old sitting on the step, butt naked, <laughs> buck naked, and eating ice cream with my brothers. Um, and I remember there's a photo of me like leaning over trying to lick my brothers. <laughs> so you're from uh, Wayland, Massachusetts, uh, uh, East Coast girl. Growing up, was there a specific uh, ice cream spot that your family visited all the time? Gosh, um, honestly, we'd go all around. It was like our weekend activity. Um, 
So I, I pretty much hit every single one within an hour radius of my hometown. So anyone would be hard to call out. Uh, so when you uh, launched the company, let's just get right into Smitten, and then we'll go back and, and start with the origins of it. Um, you had a chef on board with you named uh, Robin Lynn Lenzi. Am mm-hmm. I saying that right? Yep. Um, uh, how did that relationship develop, uh, and how did it work at the beginning where you were really the, the CEO and founder, but then you brought in a chef to help you develop? So actually, she and I teamed up before I even had an ice cream machine. So we were basically working to make ice cream purely for taste. So we were working in her kitchen um, and just prototyping flavors that we thought would work uh, only in our machine. And and it was honestly really liberating for her to focus solely on taste when most ice cream has so many other variables like shelf life. And, um, And so we were literally throwing every compromise and sacrifice out the window and focusing purely on the ingredients and that uh, sort of flavor profile. So talk about some of those ingredients and flavor profiles. I know that uh, sourcing is really important to your company. And obviously, uh, we'll talk more about the technology, but uh, you don't have to worry as much about shelf-stable products. Not so, at all, yeah. So um, sourcing. In the, yeah. in the original stages, you and Robin, both yeah, of yeah. you. We keep it simple. The Robins, Robins yeah, going Robins. around. Um, can you talk about what flavors you were developing and how you were sourcing for them? So we literally just fly by the seasons. Uh, So depending on what was good at the market that morning, we would make a flavor out of it. So everything from, you know, a lemon ginger snap in the fall to a strawberry balsamic in May to, you know, sweet corn with berries in August, um, we would literally just figure out what, what fruit or vegetable was at the peak of ripeness. And she would help me concoct a flavor out of it. And we would do a bunch of testing and then I'd go out on the street and test it out with people. How did you find her? How did you connect originally? <laughs> I just looked for Robins <laughs> who are chefs. You will only um, do business with Robins. <laughs> so actually, um, she was a friend of a friend and, uh, we just met up for coffee one day and we had just a very similar take on what I wanted to do. And, um, and she could roll with the punches, <laughs> which was really important to me because, um, because there was so much that was in the works and not finalized, and she believed in what I was doing. Um, and so we just started cooking together, and it worked really well. What type of uh, home cook are you at this point? Are you doing a ton of experimentation with ice cream at home? Or are you just a casual home cook that said, I used to eat a lot of ice cream when I was a kid? <laughs> I'm a little of both. So we're, I don't often make ice cream while I'm at home because we're making it so much when I'm um, at work at the shops. Um, so we do a heck of a lot of um, flavor testing, usually for breakfast. <laughs> we usually do our testing in the morning at like 9.30. So, um, so uh, literally, I mean, I dream of some flavors. We work on them. She dreams of some. We actually uh, bring our our broad team into it. We have experimentation mornings for anyone who's interested in playing with flavors. And then we um, we try to bring one from the team up um, into our creative sort of flushing out of flavors. Uh, and so it's sort of a continual thing. Um, and 
and at home, I honestly, I cook mostly savory, mm-hmm. uh, probably because I eat ice cream for breakfast. That makes a lot of sense. At the way, way beginning though, were you doing testing in one of your apartments? Were you renting yeah. kitchen space? No, we were, we were kind of going rogue. We were working mostly in her apartment. Hers cool. was a lot bigger than my little studio. Um, so, uh, yeah, we were working out of her kitchen and, and what year is this that you're doing the whole DIY, the Robins in a kitchen? Yeah, this was 2008 and 2009. Okay, cool. Um, let's back up before that you had a full professional career before you started this ice cream company you worked as a consultant yes i was a management consultant and i still don't know what management consultants do oh you beat me to my question (laughs) uh so you were living in you know boston new york you lived in paris for a little while as well um so specifically what type of companies did you work with and and why so much travel were you yeah so mostly fortune 500 a lot of pharma and biotech mm-hmm. um and honestly just a lot of creating powerpoint presentations that were then put in a drawer and probably never looked at again so um it was it was a, a good way of learning a lot more about myself and what i think fits and i learned that uh, i don't like office buildings i suck at following routine and um, I, I don't like following directions. So it didn't really fit me very well. But I did get to go to Paris, and I had a, a lot of fun there. So you're... Ate really well. You're, um, so you're doing this consulting. You're, you're moving around. Um, prior to that, did you have any food careers? Did you wait tables? Did you cook in a restaurant? Anything like that? Yeah, I worked at a deli in college. Um, so that was as close as I got to... Uh, to what the years uh, in between that well, I'm sure we'll discuss. I from yeah so went from working at a deli to running an ice cream shop. When you're when you're a kid in in Massachusetts, do you have an aspiration ever that you vocalized to start your own company, food or food or otherwise? I've always been a foodie, uh, but honestly, for the most part, I had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I didn't figure that out until I tried a bunch of other things and realized that that didn't fit. I had to do my own thing. So. So you become slightly burned out doing the consulting thing. And if I have the timeline correct, you decide to take the very relaxing path of enrolling in Stanford Business School. Is that? That is correct. Okay. So uh, what's the thought process behind (laughs) being a business consultant and saying, I really don't like this, and then going to the best business school (laughs) in America and probably killing yourself for two plus years? Uh, so to be honest, I was still unsure of what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I figured I would go to a place that had some of the most interesting jobs walk through the door and maybe one of them would inspire me. And so, um, when I was there, I actually found myself much more interested in what was going on sort of across the street at the design school at Stanford than, um, than the business school. And I realized that, that, uh, that was probably the reason that I was there was to sort of figure out where my interests lay. And so sort of just dove into creating stuff and, um, and realized that the entrepreneurial route was the right one for me. And Stanford luckily has a very strong entrepreneurial program. And so I just dove into those classes. So was there some sort of conversation with uh, a mentor or some teacher around Stanford campus? And you said, I'm going to start an ice cream company. And they said, (laughs) yes, no, we want to connect you with someone, or were you kind of doing this on your own? Was it more of a side project, or was it under the sort of guidelines of your normal business school curriculum? Yeah, it was. So there there were a number of classes that allowed you to explore a 
business plan for an entrepreneurial idea. And so I use ice cream as my focus of all of those. Mm -hmm. um, and so it became, it started off as a side project and became all I cared about. And so by the end of my two years there, I was known as the ice cream girl. I was prototyping my backyard. I was renting a take of liquid nitrogen. I was making ice cream for anyone who would eat it. I even catered a friend's wedding in school. And, uh, and through faculty parties and basically fed anyone who would eat my product. So it became sort of all-encompassing. So you have an idea. You're, you're an inventor now, and you need to make a prototype. Who do you find at Stanford? And what do you start working on with them? Yeah. So I found a woman who is an engineer at the D school at Stanford Design School. And she was interested in business. I was interested in design. And so we teamed up and I searched out a welding shop and I went in there and said, hey, I want to run a tank of liquid nitrogen probably the first woman ever to walk in that store <laughs> and somehow figured out how to squeeze a 150 pound tank into my tiny little car, got it home. And then honestly just started looking on Craigslist for old mixing parts and funnels and duct tape is my favorite tool. So just kind of <laughs> duct tape everything together and started prototyping. Anyone could prototype. So this sounds fun, but also pretty <laughs> dangerous. You're lugging liquid nitrogen into your apartment. Uh, they your neighbors have no idea what's going on. Your landlord assumes you're, I don't know, making meth in your apartment <laughs> or something crazy like that. Um, how much time are you spending building this prototype and uh, how long does it take you to get to a point where it's a working prototype? Yeah, so uh, a very long time. Turns out all the prototyping I did while I was in school uh, sucked. <laughs> so I learned very quickly that it was actually very easy to make ice cream with liquid nitrogen. It's, you know, liquid nitrogen is negative 321 degrees Fahrenheit. You can freeze anything with anything, you know, with something that cold. You can shatter a banana in like less than a minute. So, uh, so check, you can freeze ice cream really easily. The, the bad thing is that it's really, really hard to do it well. And so uh, I was kind of stumped. Okay, I can do this, but it isn't really any better than anything out there. And that's not okay with me. So uh, I actually graduated from Stanford and basically said I was going to try to go after this ice cream idea. Um, and so it took me actually two years after that, working in a basement workshop with a really, really brilliant retired engineer who was willing to work for equity to actually get a prototype that worked really well. So two more years <laughs> and a heck of a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and learning how to weld and learning how to dremel and basically becoming an engineer in those two years. I want to talk a little bit about the partners in the creation of Burr, which is the, uh, the actual, what the prototype ended up becoming. But I want to first ask, you left um, this promising career and then you went to business school and then essentially... After graduating, you became a street food vendor. Um, what did uh, your friends and parents think about your decisions at this point yeah. uh, in your life? Um, my parents were very supportive, though worried. Um, and I remember I went to a reunion, like the, was it the one or two year reunion at business school, and I was having a conversation with a classmate, and, and they said... Uh, no, what are you up to? And I said, uh, well, I'm selling ice cream on the street. And then there was another classmate that sort of overheard a little bit of it and came over and said, oh, you're on Wall Street. Me too. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> this is how far off the beaten track I've gotten that like 
people can't even, you know, they thought you were contemplate selling, They thought you were selling the, ice cream futures on Wall maybe, Street. Maybe, yeah. And you were selling ice cream sandwiches in the mission. On the streets, yeah. yes. Um, so um, there's this common food world debate, you know, um, culinary school versus just working in mm-hmm. kitchens. Um, if I apply that kind of directly to your experience, um, if if given the the opportunity to go back in time, uh, do you still go to Stanford and do what you did, or do you think you maybe take that time and take that same money and go work in an ice cream shop? Uh, yeah, good do you, question. How do you feel about the the path that you took? I mean, I think I, I'm I'm grateful I went. Um, I think it grounded me. It showed me that uh, it, honestly, it led me to the path because. Um, I was able to take the time out to really think deeply and to explore and to see the possibilities. And I've developed an awesome, amazing set of advisors and mentors through Stanford who have helped me solve so many problems along the way and who I can call on for anything. And, um, and you know, so much of what I do is about the food. Um, and, I you know, I, I, I want to gain, like, an extra, you know, five hours every day so that I can carve in more. But, but I do, I do also think that, you know, you need to understand how to run a business. And so I think that that has been really helpful, um, to combine those two things that, um, that make it work. So, um, you had partners in the creation of Burr. There were, there's a people who did the actual kind of design work and then there's forgers that actually put it together, right? Welders and things of that nature. Can you talk a little bit, I know it's probably a secret, but can you talk a little bit about the technology? I think it's really cool. Uh, you make ice cream in 90 seconds from start to finish. Yeah. Um, for those listeners out there that have no idea how ice cream is traditionally made, can you talk about the differences between how, uh, your company does it? For sure. So, um, for our company, um, basically, we, as I was saying, we spent a very long time inventing a prototype and then uh, the last, you know, seven years since then perfecting it. Um, and what it does is it um, uses liquid nitrogen to turn a smaller ice crystal to make a smoother texture. And basically, because liquid nitrogen is negative 321 degrees, um, it can freeze it so quickly. Um, and so the the sort of meat of how the machine works um, is that to to perfect that process so that it's actually better than, you know, store-bought ice cream, um, liquid nitrogen is so cold that it wants to stick. Like, think of a little kid who sticks their tongue to a metal pole in winter. Now subtract, like, 300 degrees from that and think how quickly things want to stick to metal. And you're in food service, so you're using, you know, stainless steel. So um, basically one of the big breakthroughs we had was uh, figuring out a way to scrape every surface of the mixing pieces and every surface of the bowl at all times so that nothing could stick together. And so after banging your heads against the wall, trying everything in existence that was currently used to scrape ice, we actually were looking at a screw and sort of turning it on the table and, you know, screw has a downward spiral. And so we took a clothes hanger and we wrapped it like a screw around an arm and plunked it down and then did that with another clothes hanger, wrapped it around the arm and plunked it down, put them together. And if you think about that, you've got two sort of double helices and um, started turning them together and realized that if you do that, uh, just to, you know, with a lot of precision, you actually create something that scrapes every surface of itself. And so that was our first prototype out of two clothes hangers. Um, And that allowed not only... um, 
every particle to move and not stick, but it also, if you move them in, a, in the right direction, they push down and, and that creates a super, super dense product. Um, and it limits overrun. Overrun is air in the ice cream. Um, so it's just super flavorful. And then the next breakthrough was, okay, we're scraping everything off the beaters, but you have this like bowl that's just sitting there. And so things stick to the bowl. And so our next thing that we did with the machine was move the bowl. So when the bowl moves in the opposite direction as the beaters, and then literally everything's moving, you make the freshest, purest, smoothest ice cream as a result. And so we just built the rest of the machine around that interaction. We were able to uh, file a couple patents on it, which I wrote in my spare time. And um, and so that's, that's how our machine works. Um, the traditional ice cream maker is a much more lengthy, lengthy process. Um, so a, a lot of chefs use a Paco jet, um, and that's basically, uh, you know, it's frozen at a much higher temperature um, between, uh, you know, around zero degrees, and uh, it takes over half an hour, I believe, and then it has to be stored in a deep freezer. Um, and so, and I believe it's usually stored overnight. Um, so it's, it's a much longer process uh, and, you know, different result. What's the size of the machine that you created? And does it sit on the counter in a spin ice cream shop? Yeah. So the the first machine <laughs> was about 40 pounds and about the size of an espresso machine. And now we've made the machine much more robust. I can get into that more um, and kind of unbreakable. And now it's about 100 pounds and um, kind of like a bigger espresso machine. But um, it doesn't break anymore. So 90 <laughs> seconds from start to finish. Yes, sir. Uh, and how many are of these units are typically in a store? Um, so we have six machines in a store, and we have six flavors every day, and that's a purposeful <laughs> connection. So um, usually our stores get pretty busy, and so we want to make sure that um, we're able to serve people really quickly. And so we we also believe in simplicity, and uh, simplicity makes us focus on every single flavor and make sure that we don't put anything out there that's not amazing. So we have a six flavor menu, and that's it. Um, and so we change our flavors often, but, uh, each machine turns only one flavor a day and, um, allows us to, so each machine is, is capable of making more than one order at a time. Yes. So okay. the, the largest batch a machine can make at one time is a pint. So if you want to come in and order a pint for your dinner party, you can do that and we'll turn it into order and you can bring it home and eat it that night. And then if you want to order, you know, uh, basically, a you know, four ounce small, then you can do that too. So uh, beyond having a vision for a company, um, you also threw your hat in the ring as an inventor. You hold the patents um, for some of these um, machinery. Uh, you decided to make ice cream in 90 seconds. Uh, you had a very, it seems like a very clear vision of how you wanted to differentiate yourself. Um, but did you ever just consider making ice cream a more normal way? Um, did, you all, did you have any points that you thought that you would just open a more um, traditional shop or was 90 seconds always the plan? The 90 seconds doesn't really matter that much. It was more, I wanted to make ice cream wholesome and pure and fresh again. Um, honestly, like I am pretty flabbergasted by how the, the ice cream industry has kind of derailed over the last couple decades. Um, and it's, if you look at the ingredients in the back of ice cream cartons, it's kind of scary. There's so many gums and honestly, I can't even pronounce a lot of the ingredients anymore. And so 
basically what I wanted to do was just try to throw all those things out the window and make, you know, fresh churned ice cream. And you're thinking like, A, most importantly, it tastes so much better. Gums don't taste that good. All those extra ingredients are kind of chemically tasting. And so, so the, the, my hypothesis was if I get rid of all that, I can make the best tasting product. And Hey, I am a huge ice cream connoisseur. I want the best tasting product. Um, and I also, you know, care about what I put, what I put in my body. Um, but, but taste is, you know, is paramount. And so, um, and so to throw all those compromises and sacrifices out the window, that's how I got to, Hey, I wonder if I can make every batch to order. And that's what got me to, um, you know, to the liquid nitrogen make and the 90 seconds. Uh, but I didn't start with, Hey, how do I, you know, do something crazy? It was more like, how do I fix this problem? Um, that, that is inherent to my favorite product now in, in this kind of day and age. Um, and so it was, I was honestly using technology to go back in time in a lot of ways and just bring it to the modern day, uh, in a way that, um, I think is better. So, um, yeah, the liquid nitrogen is a means to an end. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And this one is called Torchlight by Rectech. We'll be right back. program has been brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential small hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 40 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant or enjoy a cocktail and listen to live jazz in one of their cozy Victorian seating areas. Mingle with travelers from around the world who find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. And welcome back to the line. I'm here with Robin Sue Fisher. She started an ice cream company in 2011. Uh, it began with a lot of research and development at Stanford. You created a machine uh, that you've now patented to make ice cream uh, quite quickly uh, without having a lot of additives. Uh, when you started walking around San Francisco with this machine in the back of a, a, a cart? Uh, a, a radio flyer wagon. A wagon. Yeah. Uh, What's a normal day like for you when you're you wake up in the morning and decide to take your your wagon out to the streets of San Francisco? There is no normal, but uh, so my chef and I would basically decide what flavor we wanted to serve, and uh, we would usually make it the night before. And so I'd wake up in the morning, floor usually very sticky <laughs> from cooking the night before, and uh, load up the wagon. I'd set it up basically place down a milk crate, put my machine on top, bungee cord it on, 
Uh, I made a battery pack out of a, a motorcycle battery uh, that basically I rewired and reconfigured to power the machine for about four hours. Since like, otherwise you have to plug it into the wall and that doesn't work on the street. So uh, motorcycle battery it was. And then a uh, tank of liquid nitrogen, basically a 10-liter tank. And then a cooler that housed the fresh ingredients of the day. And then um, figured out what park I was going to, uh, usually somewhere in the Mission or Bernal Heights um, in San Francisco. And I got on Twitter, said, here's where I'm going to be, here's the flavor of the day, come and get it before I sell out or before the cops come. And, and that was kind of my, my daily routine. So what is the response from San Francisco police when they walk up to you and they ask, what are you doing? Luckily, I only had that interaction once, and it was more like, what the <laughs> and I just sat there smiling. Do you want ice cream? <laughs> See ya. <laughs> and pack up, wheel away. Um, so luckily, uh, luckily, never had to deal with any n- nuisances there. But um, but did end up working with the uh, San Francisco Health Department to sort of revise a lot of their policies because they made it pretty impossible for entrepreneurs who didn't have any financing to, to start a business. And so um, I started. Um, Honestly, just working with them to try to make it possible for people like me to, you know, to start something in a way that that was legit. Did they approach you or did you approach them to work on those practices? A little bit of both. So I went to this one event uh, that I served ice cream on my wagon. One of the people there was a a really cool health inspector who kind of took me under his wing. And then I learned more about um, more about everything that, uh, you know, needed to happen to be become quote-unquote legal and i was like this just doesn't make sense it's just not possible and there are all these food entrepreneurs and and honestly it was 2009 it was during the recession there were so many other chefs on the street who were you know beside me there was like a whole street food movement and um and no one had you know 10 to twenty thousand dollars to deal with all of the permitting constraints so um so we worked with them for like a year to get things changed so you're having some success on the street. Yeah. People are excited about the flavors. You make a decision to do a brick and mortar. Yeah. So there, it was a funny moment. There was literally a month where Smitten ice cream out of a Radio Flower wagon on the street was number one on Yelp for all restaurants in San Francisco above Gary Danko. And that was like a monumental period. And so then I was like, all right, all right, I think I, think I can make this work. A lot of our uh, listeners are in the industry. Um, Many people often think about opening their own restaurant project one day, um, doing a craft packaged foods line. Um, You went and did just that. Uh, Did you self-fund the project? Did you organize a raise? Can you talk about how that came about? So I didn't, I wasn't able to self-fund. I was coming out of business school debt and um, and funding of a ice cream machine. Uh, so, um, but I, I changed my philosophy of how how a company can and and I thought should be started instead of, you know, saying you got to raise as much money as you can. I I really thought you got to raise as little money as you possibly need um, to get to the next step. And um, I it was so much blood, sweat, and tears that I figured, hey, I, I I can bootstrap this thing. I can I can figure it out and roll with the punches. So let's do something really scrappy. So um, I decided to build the first shop out of a shipping container. Um, I found a literally 40-foot-long, rusted old shipping container and figured, let's restore this and make it a you know cool walk-up ice cream bar. Um, so, uh, so I did raise uh, some money. Um, and at that point, I had a lot of 
fans who are following Smitten. And so, um, honestly, I had to cut off. I had to cut off the funding because I didn't want to raise more than I needed. Good problem to so, have. Um, wow. Yeah, and so we and we, I got to know a lot of them. I was, you know, it took a, I was selling ice cream up for a year on the street. Got to know a lot of the people who ended up getting involved, and they were all individuals. Nothing, no institutional money. So, so I, I imagine that. Uh, and people, investors, were very interested in the Burr technology. Um, when you set up doing a raise for your company, did you only look for investment at the unit level, or were you uh, offering investment at the IP, the intellectual property level? Uh, Good and, question. And how did that? Yeah. How did you make that decision? Um, I'm rarely asked this question. Good question. So I actually separated the two out. So I had an LLC, which was the first shop. And then I had an S-Corp, which had the technology. And so I raised money for the LLC because, I, A, I wasn't, um, I, you know, wasn't positive that this was going to fly. And, B, you know, I still thought it was important to feel people out and make sure that we got along because this, you know, this was what I was pursuing. And I wanted to make sure that you, know, you don't get married to people before you know them. What's and an so, S-Corp? An S-Corp is basically a single, like a single proprietorship. Okay. Um, corporation. So it basically has different tax rules than a C Corp, which is a more normal, like bigger company. Um, and so, uh, so I did that and raised money, um, for the shop level and just vet, like, I can get super nerdy on it, but, um, please. <laughs> okay. So you have to think about how you value, um, the shop, uh, so that you know what to raise money, sort of how to divide the equity. And so I wanted to be more than fair to the people who got in early, and so I valued it pretty low. And so that made, honestly, fundraising easier and also um, made me feel like I was being fair to the people who were believing me from the beginning. And also by keeping the technology separate, I had um, a way of if, you know, if that didn't work out or for some reason, I could still figure out the next step with the technology. So, um, so that was how I first did it. And then I ended up getting, uh, needing more patents. So I ended up getting convertible debt for the, for the corporation, um, which is a really cool way of raising money. It basically, you can pay it back or you can convert them into equity. And so, um, I was lucky enough to get, um, some amazing investors who, um, honestly are just some of the best people I know. And so, um, once I got to know them more, was totally comfortable um, with the with the option of converting them into the larger company. Uh, okay, so you're structuring your business. You you have a chef. You have investors. <laughs> yeah. You have um, inventors that share in the IP. Um, did you have someone specific that helped you tackle the organization of the structure of this? Um, I mean, you were you were still going out pretty much day to day, and I assume looking at locations, still trying to sell ice cream. Sounds like a, um, it's a monumentally large project and it sounds confusing. How did you, uh, how did you organize it? Yeah. Um, well I'm on year five at this point. <laughs> it was, I had a lot of time to research the right way to do things and to talk to people who'd done it some other ways and, um, what, you know, what hadn't gone well for them, um, and to collect advice. And so, and also honestly, this is where the business school, um, uh, you know, advisors came in handy a lot um, in terms of how do I do this? It's so much of my heart and soul at this point, and I want to make sure not to screw it up um, and not focus on like let's get the biggest valuation. I I cared about it and wanted to make sure that I didn't that I didn't lose sight of that you know that inherent sort of value and in heart and soul. And so um, I approached it 
um, from a different way than a lot of people do, but just try to collect war stories. You know, what didn't work out when you did these things? And, um, and so uh, just try to take every precaution in how I raise money, and it's paid off. Uh, certain people, when they, they start a business, they, uh, they don't want to relinquish any amount of control. Uh, as the founder and CEO, this is your, your baby. Uh, how did it feel to, at some level, relinquish some control, but also specifically re- relinquish a certain percentage of your company to people who had never worked a minute on the street with you in San Francisco? Um, I was fine with it, honestly. Um, I, I think that you know you need people who believe in you, and I think that um, that all I showed was I showed that I you know had a immense amount of perseverance and that I could build something that made better ice cream. But I had not proven myself. Like I'd never run an ice cream shop before, and they were believing that you know I could become a general manager of a store and and figure out all of the nuances of that, which is. A, like I learned very, very hard. Um, and so my philosophy, honestly, to this day has always been if someone believes in it and, and shows passion for what I'm doing, I'd, I'd, I'm more than happy to share. Uh, I believe we have something really big here and I'd rather have a small piece of a big pie than a big piece of a small pie. And to this day, I mean, we have soon to be 10 shops. We give, uh, we give every manager equity. And that's important to me that I'm saying, Hey, like this is my heart and soul. I want it to be your heart and soul. And, um, I'm I'm asking you to take ownership here and that's not fair unless I give you some ownership. And so if I want them to treat it like their store, then they should have it be partly their store. So that's kind of always been my philosophy to get people to really, um, appreciate what we're doing here. That seems rare. I haven't heard of many people doing that. Um, that leads me to my next question about uh, margins. It seems like you've made a lot of decisions that are not necessarily specifically motivated just by the bottom line. Um, how do you come to that decision yourself? And then perhaps more importantly for our listeners that own businesses uh, and are looking to raise money, how do you sell that through to an investor? So I believe in making the best product, um, and I believe in simplicity. So we do one thing, and we do it better than anyone else. And to do it better than anyone else, you need really good ingredients. So um, we do not focus solely on our margin. We focus on an exceptional product and an exceptional um, experience for our guests. Um, and as of course, honestly, you, you have to make the, sure the numbers work out. But um, but if people if people see the true essence of why your product stands out, then they, the rest of it's easy. So I, I don't believe in sacrificing um, taste or quality. Uh, there's definitely nuances to how do you figure out um, how it all fits together. And so we, you know, we we look a lot at our staffing and we look a lot at how we improve the, the guest experience. So on busy times, um, we actually have found that having more people, which is more expensive at our shops, we actually do better. So um, it's kind of counterintuitive, but if you have a line and you have, you know, say seven people working and they're working really hard and they're not interacting with our guests, then people are going to start walking away. So we say, let's have nine. Let's have two extra people who are just there to like talk to people on the line, keep them engaged, maybe take some orders, help people figure out what they want to order. And that you know extra labor 
dollars actually pays off. It actually, our, our, our sales are higher when we actually staff more. Um, so I highly encourage people to just, um, you know, to think, to think about how to deliver the best product and the best experience. And then, um, and a lot of what you sort of study on paper isn't true. And, and a lot of it, you just have to try it and compare. Um, but we, you know, we get organic milk and cream from local farms. We get organic produce from farmers. We, you know, we focus on um, every single ingredient and we pick it by hand. We have a, we literally have a person on our team who's our hunter and gatherer, and that is her job. Um, and as a result, we also focus on, as I said, simplicity. We have six flavors and that's it. And honestly, it's ice cream. So there aren't that many ingredients. We're talking about, you know, organic milk, organic cream, sugar, um, salt, uh, and, you know, the various flavors of the different products. And therefore, we have really good relationships with all our partners. Um, and we're able to make sure that it's a long-term relationship. And I spend time with, you know, we do farm visits, we do relationships, uh, relationship building, and, and that's part of our business um, so that the numbers work, but we don't sacrifice. We just, you know, we build. Uh, your your expansion rate is fairly dynamic by any sort of metrics. 10 stores by the end of 2016. Uh, how have you been able to uh, grow at such a quick rate, maintain consistency, and can you speak to some actually some issues that you've had with this fast growth, um, if there are any. Yeah. So it's funny cause I'm on year 10 and now <laughs> shop 10. So that's, it's actually not that fast, but, um, but, uh, first of all, we do not, we don't add shops unless we are ready for it. So our two ways of evaluating that are, um, we look internal and we say, how many people do we have on our team? We're now about 200 people who are ready for more challenge. And I love working with amazing people and amazing people like new challenges. And so we hire just super smart, super, you know, passionate about food people who just like to rise to challenges. So we have a lot of young, um, young general managers who have been with us and just want to take it on. And we love that. We love promoting from within. So that's one thing we look at. And the next, we, um, we, we look to fall in love with our buildings um, and to find something that may not be expected. So for instance, right now, we're building a shop in Silver Lake out of a dilapidated car repair shop that I fell in love with. Um, and um, to me, that was just so perfect. <laughs> and most people wouldn't say that. But if I'm not going to if the building doesn't like speak to me and feel really special and I don't think we can do something, you know, really out of the ordinary, then we're not going to do it. So it's not like we set out, we're going to open six stores this year and we go find, you know, just squares and brick and mortars. Um, it's, it's a, you know, it is a more nuanced process. And if we find, um, more that we love and our team are ready, then we'll do more. And if we don't, then we'll do zero. So, um, that's how that works. But, um, in terms of, of things I've learned, um, one thing that's actually really interesting and I think really, really cool is that growth actually allows us to do things better. Um, it allows us, uh, to focus more on, um, on getting the best ingredients allows us to have a little more negotiating power, allows us to take more risks because we have more stability. We're not relying on one or two shops for everything. Um, and, um, and I think it's, it's a really powerful way of saying, Hey, we're going to actually do things better. So we're working, we have, we're 
putting together a sustainability action plan. We're basically trying to, there's a couple fruits and vegetables that we have not been able to do organic because of um, sourcing constraints. And now um, we're committing to trying to figure that out by, um, by working directly with more farms. So it just honestly allows you to, 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 to do things better if you, if you look at it through the right angle. In terms of things that, that we have done worse, there is one. Um, and we're getting better at it again. But for a while, when I first opened our first shop in Hayes Valley at the shipping container, we changed two flavors every week. It was kind of crazy. But I was just like, oh, my gosh, like we're the only company that is making ice cream like this. And we have such flexibility. Let's just like take it to the max and like figure out every week what we're doing next. And it was mayhem. It was awesome, awesome mayhem. Um, but with more shops, we literally had like <laughs> just... A, there were teams that were just like in tears because we were just changing things so quickly that there was so much, uh, so much in motion that it was hard to, hard to handle. And so, um, when we've had, once we had like four stores, we started, we started changing flavors less frequently. And honestly, that, that bugged me for a couple of years and now we're figuring out again how to change more rapidly again. So it's, it's, it's taken sort of thinking about how do we simplify and how do we make this easier to execute. But, um, but for a while we, we did become, um, sort of, uh, less innovative on a flavor, um, standpoint, but we're, we're getting better at it again. Very serious question. You can no longer eat your ice cream. <laughs> For the rest of your life, you can only eat Dippin' Dots, Choco oh, Tacos, <laughs> or a Dairy Queen Swirl. Whose other product do you go with out of those three oh, classics man. from childhood? I would have to go with Dairy Queen. I grew up, so I played sports. Uh, I was big tomboy growing up and played Little League Baseball with the boys, and I would always go to Dairy Queen afterwards with the team, so... The nostalgia of that just captured me. Good memories. So you've been doing this project for 10 years. You're about to open up your 10th location at the end of this year. Do you have dreams uh, beyond ice cream for future projects? Um, good question. So I, I am pretty committed to the ice cream <laughs> industry, but, um, but I have big dreams within that industry, and we're just beginning as a company. Um, I think it's a, it's an enormous market. It's, you know, $52 billion market, 8 billion of which is in the U S and honestly, it's really stale. Uh, and it's, everyone's kind of conforming to the rules of engagement. Uh, and I believe that, um, a lot of those rules should be thrown out the window. And so, um, I see our ice cream shops as just the beginning of our journey to show people that they can have better ice cream um, throughout, throughout the country. And, um, and it's beyond just thinking about retail. So we're, we are an innovation company and, uh, we focus on ice cream. Robin, thank you so much for being with us. Join us next week on the line heritage radio, 11 AM on Tuesdays. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. 
You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.